0: Well, hello everybody, how are you? Great to see you. Hello from the land of fire and fury. So great to be in a country that's sane. Um, <laughs> hi, my name's Joan Mark. I'm from Portland, Oregon, just a few hours, and a, a whole other country away, um, and a four hour road trip. Come down, our coffee is better than yours. Take that. <laughs> and, uh, and our weather is just as bad. So come anytime you want. It's great to be with you. Um, I pastor a church in kind of the urban core of Portland. And you know, the Pacific Northwest just has so much in common, Vancouver, Portland, secular, post-Christian, progressive, depressing, bad weather. Pretty much nothing positive except for good coffee. So <laughs> here we are together. Um, I was asked to come and talk to you about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, or put another way, what it means to follow Jesus, and this is like, right out of my heart, and so it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward, but yet I think has the potential to really shape the way that we live for decades to come, and I just love, I'm getting to know your community, it's my first time here, and I just love um, the leaders that I'm getting to know, the caliber of leaders is just stunning, and the people, and you're Canadians, so you're like all nice. Are there any mean Canadians? Do they exist? Yeah, the, in Alberta or something, you know? Not here. Well, just the... The image, the mirage in my my mind's eye of, like, a a mean kid, it doesn't exist. So I'm happy to be with you. Um, If you have a Bible, please turn to the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 1. If you're new to Jesus and the Bible, there are four first-century biographies of Jesus of Nazareth in the New Testament. And Mark, as far as we can tell, is the original, and it's short, and it's to the point, and I love it. And to start off, before we get there, let's talk for a minute about Jesus. You know, Jesus was a lot of things. We know him best as the Messiah or the long-awaited King of Israel, and even as more than that, as the Son of God. But if you were at synagogue one Saturday morning in the first century, and Jesus were to show up at your synagogue to teach, the odds are more than likely that the category you would have fit Jesus into was that of a rabbi. Rabbi is a Hebrew word, and put simply, all it means is a teacher. And Uh, That's exactly what Jesus was, a young, brilliant, provocative, like upset-the-status-quo, up-and-coming rabbi or teacher in Israel. Of the 90 or so times that people address Jesus in the Gospels, he goes by the title of rabbi or teacher. And a rabbi would travel around from village to village and town to town with his yoke. That was a first century idiom for his set of teachings, his way of reading the Torah or the Bible of the day, and more than that, his kind of vision of what it means to be human. And this is a very simple idea that Jesus was a teacher or a rabbi, yet tragically, it's an idea that a lot of us have lost sight of in the Western church, whether you're in America or Canada or Canada. I, only, I kind of said it like you said it. That was on accident. That's the, the Holy Spirit anointing for or Canada, that's right. I'm just gonna start making statements sounding like questions <laughs> by the end of my time here. so, ah, I love it. You're rubbing off on me. Um, tragically, this is an idea that, you know, I think we've kind of lost sight of all through North America and through Europe. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. One is the Protestant-Catholic divide, if you know your church history. More recently, it honestly has more to do with uh, the liberal-conservative riff, where a generation or two ago, liberals emphasized the humanity of Jesus and said he was a teacher, as in he's nothing more. And then conservatives, kind of the comeback, they emphasized the deity of Jesus and said, no, he's the son of God. And so you kind of have this riff, and we threw out the baby with the bathwater. And I honestly believe this is an idea that we need to recapture that Jesus was a rabbi. He was more than just a rabbi, but he was, to start with, a teacher. And I think it has the potential to radically reframe how you and I think about what it means to follow or to be a disciple of Jesus. You know, we say that a lot. I follow Jesus. Do you follow Jesus? I'm a disciple of Jesus. Are you a disciple of Jesus? But honestly, it's become a cliche And I don't really know that we even know what it actually means. So let's just read a story or two about Jesus, the rabbi, and all of his disciples. Take a look at Mark chapter one. Let's start off in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come and what? I know you're Canadian, but can you just, like, talk out loud for a minute? Can you do that? That wasn't a slam. I love Canadians. I, I honestly love you. You just don't really express excitement ever. <laughs> but I honestly love you, you know, just a, a little bit. I don't need any Pentecostal love, just a little. That's all I'm, all I'm asking for, right? Come and what? <laughs> that, that was too much. That was like, this is the Northwest. We're down to earth. We're calm, all right? Okay. Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now at once, right then and there, they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and right there, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. Poor dad. And they followed Jesus. Turn the page, chapter two, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. He's a rabbi, right? He's a teacher. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. What did he say? Follow. Follow. That was perfect. Right there. That was exactly spot on. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Turn the page, chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. Remember that for later and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name something, which means son of thunder, and Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. One more, turn over to chapter eight and skip down to verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him, again, But along with his disciples, and he said this, listen carefully. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Did you see a pattern in there? And story after story, and that was just a sample set, the invitation of Jesus was not what we hear a lot in the Western church, hey, believe in me and, you know, go to heaven when you die. And in the meantime, try really hard to be a good person and at least go to church every other weekend to feel good about yourself. Like it's not in there. The invitation of Jesus was come and follow me. Or put another way, come and be my disciple. Now, the word disciple in Hebrew is Talmudim. Can you say that? Talmudim. Well done. And there's a number of ways to translate Talmudim into English. It can be translated disciple. That's just fine. um, Except disciple is a word that's a churchy word. And so we import a lot of meaning into it. Some is right, some is not so right. It can also be translated student. But don't think student at you know, UBC or Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I take a class with Jesus from like 10 to 10.50. and it can, Or it can also be translated follower. But don't think, you know, oh, I follow Jesus on Instagram. He's great. I like him every time, you know, <laughs> or, or whatever. A Talmudim was so much more. Honestly, I would argue, and I'm not alone here. A number of scholars make this case that the best word we have in the English language to capture the idea behind Talmudim is the word apprentice. To follow a rabbi was to apprentice under a rabbi. Now, a little backstory. Discipleship, or I prefer the language of apprenticeship, wasn't invented by Jesus of Nazareth. A lot of people don't realize that. He was not the first rabbi to have disciples, nor was he the last. Rabbi Hillel, um, a famous rabbi a few years before Jesus, had 70 disciples or apprentices. Rabbi Akiva, another famous rabbi a few decades later, only had five, but he had thousands that were said to, quote, follow him. In fact, discipleship didn't even start in Israel. It started all the way back in Greece, several hundred years before. Plato, if you know about him, was a disciple of Socrates, and so on. Later, that model of education spread across the Mediterranean to Israel. All that to say discipleship or apprenticeship was part and parcel, not only of the first century Jewish world, but of the Mediterranean world as a whole. But sadly, a lot of the time, when we think about discipleship in the 21st century in Surrey, Surrey, how do you say it? I can't quite do it, I'm sorry, in Canada, whatever, or in America, wherever you call home, it's torn out of its context. So give me a few minutes just to nerd out on you with a brief history lesson. In the first century, discipleship, or again, apprenticeship, was the apex of the Hebrew education system. So there were three levels to the education system of that day. The first was called Beit Sefer, a Hebrew phrase meaning the house of the book. And it was essentially the equivalent of our grade school. You would learn to read, learn to write, learn to do basic arithmetic. And then on top of that, you would memorize most, if not all, of the Torah. So like, just think about that for a minute. Think about your Bible, like Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy memorized, right? Now, the vast majority of children were done right after that around the age of 12. And if you were female, you would um, start a betrothal process. And a year or two later, you would start to bear children. If you were a man, you had to wait another year or two. And then you would start that exact same process. In the meantime, you would join the family business and work with your father. And the vast majority of everybody was done at that point. But the best of the best moved on to a second level of education called Beit Talmud, or the House of Learning. This was a school that was, um, if you were a synagogue or your village was wealthy enough, it was built off the side of the synagogue, and you had a full-time paid teacher, often a rabbi or a scribe. And this was for men and men only, ages 12 to 14. And in this two-, three-year process, you would memorize most, if not all, of the Old Testament. So can you imagine, by your 16th birthday, Genesis to Malachi memorized. Now, if you feel really guilty like me, like just it was an oral culture, and that doesn't help a lot, but it does help a little, right? And then again, the vast majority of people at that point were done. But the best of the best of the best, the Summa Kaulade, the Rhodes Scholarship, the Ivy League, people from the East Coast, whatever would go on to become a Talmudim or an apprentice of a rabbi. But this was like really hard to get into. You had to sit for an interview with a rabbi and he would just grill you. How well do you know the Torah? What about the Mishnah? What do you think of Rabbi Hillel versus Shammai? Which side do you land on the Any Clause debate? What about the Nephilim? I mean, he would just interrogate you to no end. And after a while, if he thought you had the smarts, you had the acumen, the IQ, you had the drive, you had the work ethic, you had the charisma, you had the following on Twitter, like you had good, whatever it was, the charm. If he thought you had what it takes for you to one day become a rabbi yourself, then he would turn to you and he would say something like, come and follow me, or come and be my disciple. Now, let's say you made the cut. You're the best of the best. You're the 1% or the 0.01%, and you become a Talmudim. You become an apprentice to a rabbi. Well, then you had three goals. Your first goal was to be with your rabbi. Think of that line that we read, quote, that they might be with him. Apprenticeship was 24-7. There was no class like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and summer off. Do you have summers off up here? You don't really have summers. Do you have something off, you know? (laughs) Um, You would literally follow your rabbi all over Israel and spend every waking moment with him. You would sleep at his side, eat two or three meals a day at his side all day long. In fact, there was a well-known Hebrew blessing in the first century that sounded the English translation as something like, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Because there was no classroom, your rabbi would teach you en route from village to village. He was teaching at one synagogue, and then he had a gig Tuesday night or whatever, and you would walk slowly but surely from one village to the next behind your rabbi, you and 10, 15, however many other apprentices. And it was a dirt road. There's no like paved asphalt. None of that. It's a dirt road. And you walk behind him all day long. And by the end of the day, you were just covered in the dust of your rabbi. So that was goal number one, just to be with him, around him, shoulder to shoulder, 24-7. Goal number two was to become like your rabbi, Jesus has this great line that uh, the biographer Luke writes down, quote, the apprentice is not above the rabbi, but everyone who is fully trained will become like their rabbi. End quote Jesus. That was the end goal of apprenticeship, to become like your rabbi. In our day and age, you know, it's all about be true to yourself. You're a snowflake. Nobody is like, that's a, that's a, that comes from Portland, by the way. That's from Fight Club. That's a whole other thing, but I digress. But we have this hyper-emphasis on the individual. But this is another day and another age. Your goal was to become the carbon copy of your rabbi. You would literally copy his every move, his mannerism, his dress, his idiom, his figure of speech, his tone of voice. You wanted to be him. Get inside his mind. Get inside his heart. Copy his very body. You wanted to be your rabbi. And then third, your goal was to do what he did. Did you see that goal, that line about how Jesus' end goal was to, quote, send them out to preach and drive out demons? It's exactly what Jesus had been up to, preaching and driving out demons. So the whole point of apprenticeship was for you one day to become a rabbi yourself, to do what your rabbi did, to take the work that he started, to take the baton and to move it forward. And when he thought you were ready, he would turn to you and you'd say something like, all right, kid, You've been with me for a year or two, however long now. I think you're ready. I think you have what it takes. Go and make disciples. Now, let's flip this around from the first century to the 21st century, from Galilee to Surrey, or however you say it. To follow Jesus, listen to me carefully, to follow Jesus is to organize your life around the exact same three goals. First off, to be with Jesus. This, I would argue, is our first and most important goal, to spend every waking moment with our teacher. Now, of course, the question is, how does this work now? Follow Jesus wasn't exactly a metaphor in the first century. It meant he's walking that way, walk behind him, right? So how do we follow Jesus? Two millennia later on the other side of the world, like how exactly does that work? I mean, he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's, not, he's here by the Spirit, but he's not here in a body. So how do I follow Jesus now? And the short answer is through relationship to the Spirit of Jesus. This means that the first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. This is like the baseline for life in the kingdom of God. I think of John 15. I think we have it up on the wall. One of Jesus' most famous teachings. Do we have it up there? Up here? We have my name. That's weird. It's giant. There's no dash, by the way, just as long as we're on. All right, here we go. Do you have John chapter 15? It's okay. I still love you, you know? Do you have that next slide? If not, I'll just read it. Here we go. One of the most famous teachings of Jesus right here. Just take this in. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. It's a word picture. Remain in me, that word in Greek is meno, can be translated remain, or you have an older translation, it's abide. It literally means to make a home, to call your address me. As I also make my home and abide and remain and call my address in you, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Next slide. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you re- He's just driving the point home. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my Talmudim or my disciples. Notice this word meno, remain, abide, live, call home is used not once, not twice, but 10 times in two paragraphs. Jesus is driving the point home, and his metaphor for how you and I be with him or be with the Spirit is that of a branch abiding in the vine. Dallas Willard, a Christian philosopher, died a few years ago, whose teaching has shaped my life and my view of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus more than anybody, has this beautiful quote. Put this up for me. This is Like, I think my all-time favorite quote, I literally have this printed out in the inside of my closet at home, and I read it most days before I go to work. He writes this. It's a bit dense. Let me just read it nice and slow and just take it all in. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. In the early time of our practicing, We may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. I love how kind and gracious he is. He means you're going to think about anything and that like your mind is just like a monkey. It just is all over the place, right? Squirrel. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. His point is that living in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit, what Jesus called abiding, what Brother Lawrence, and that's the quote there, called the practice of the presence of God, it takes exactly that. It takes practice. It won't just, ah, uh, happen, especially if you have a smartphone, Wi-Fi access, and a life. It takes practice. This is where the practices of Jesus or what in church tradition are called the spiritual discipline, silence, solitude, prayer, scripture, Sabbath, worship. By this is what the practices are all about. They are just ways to just pause for a moment in the chaos of life, take a deep breath, and just say, God, you're here. And now I'm here too. I set my mind before you. We talk a lot about the absence of God, the felt absence of God. And that is a problem. But a far more pressing problem is the absence of us, our mind, our body. We're all over the map. We're busy. We're in traffic. We're on our phone. We're in social media. We're in class. we are too doo doo. We're late. Yeah, God's absence is an issue. Our absence is a far greater issue. The practices, the disciplines are just a way to become present to God, to our own soul, even to our own body. How? Just to breathe in and breathe out and set your mind before God. And I'm telling you, if you're new to the Jesus thing and you're thinking, all right, this is like overwhelming and there's all this stuff and there's like all these songs I don't know and... There's like insider language and there's like a Bible and it's a, a long and all of where do I even start? Right here. This is it. It's very simple. This is baseline. This is. It's not like a three-step formula, but this is step one. Like You just start here. You just abide in the vine. You be with Jesus. You practice the presence of God. You start to retrain your mind through what science is now calling neuroplasticity, what followers of Jesus have just called prayer or meditation. Like you just start to create new neural pathways where your mind, like a compass, it just goes back to God, goes back to God. Your mind goes back to something. You ever know somebody whose mind's just been corrupted by something that happened in the past and their mind just goes back to that wound, that anger, that father, that abuse, that moment, that failure, that mistake, that embarrassment. Their mind goes there, goes there, goes there. For a follower of Jesus, the invitation is to retrain your mind through prayer to just go back to God, go back to God, go back to God, to live two places at once, in class and in the presence of God, at church and in the presence of God, in traffic and in the presence of God, on a run or at the gym and in the presence of God, on a date and in the presence of God, whatever it is for you or less than that, whatever. I don't know. That's it. And I'm telling you, the best part about following Jesus, honest to God, is Jesus. There's lots of other great stuff. He is like the best thing on offer. Once you start to enjoy and experience the presence of God through the Holy Spirit on a day-by-day basis, that like at that point you're off to the races, that's it. So goal number one, to be with Jesus. Goal number two is to become like Jesus. Out of that place of abiding, your goal as an apprentice of Jesus is to become like your rabbi, in this case, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, back in the day, this was called sanctification if you grew up in the church. That's kind of the kind of new insider lingo for it is spiritual formation. And that language has changed a bit just because of like the um, coming to bear of psychology and behavioral science and learning theory has been just so over-the-top helpful in grasping how human beings actually change. But spiritual formation is not the same thing as self-help. There's a lot of overlap, honestly, but it's very different. Here's a great working definition: quote: spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasing being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. And the thing you have to get about spiritual formation is that it's not a Christian thing, it's a human thing. Does that make sense to you? Meaning we're all being formed. Christian, atheist, Muslim, Buddhist, Baha'i. Does, you, we're all being formed from the inside out. Put another way, we're all becoming somebody. To be a human being is to be dynamic, not static. You're not a fixed point in the universe. You are a living organism. So the question that you have to ask yourself, whether you follow Jesus or not, especially in your young years, but all through your life, is who am I becoming? Because you're becoming somebody. Put another way, we're all disciples of somebody or something, right? The question is not, are you a disciple? It's who or what are you a disciple of? What are you giving your mind to? What are you giving your heart to? What are you giving your time, your money, your life, your body, your sexuality, your you to? You are giving it to somebody or something, even if it's yourself. You are becoming somebody or something. And the question is, who are you becoming? You're growing, you're maturing, but into What? I don't know about you, but my guess is that there are hundreds of people in the room tonight, and like, honest to God, you want to grow and mature and to become like Jesus. You ache, like I ache, for what the writers of the New Testament called transformation. I love in Greek it's this word, metamorpho, where we get the word metamorphos, the the profound transformation from a caterpillar to a butterfly, like we ache for that, this radical overhaul of our entire person from the inside out, not just our behavior, but our heart itself transformed to become like Jesus. And again, the question we have to ask is, well, how? And again, there's no short answer to that one. But again, we come back to the practices of Jesus or the spiritual disciplines. You know, um, I love January. This is the time for New Year's resolutions. And I know there's some haters in the room. You're down on New Year's resolutions. Feel free to waste your life. The rest of us (laughs) love them, all right? But the problem with New Year's resolutions, we all know this, is the stats are in. 92% of New Year's resolutions fail by the end of the year. And get this, 80% of them by February. By February, like, the math is not in your favor, right? And it's because New Year's resolutions, like much Christian theology in the West, work off a faulty formula of information plus inspiration plus willpower equals change. And while I'm all for information, here's here's a better way to think about things, and I'm all for inspiration, you're moved in the heart to go do it, and I'm all for willpower, you try really hard, that triad is not enough by itself for sure to change at least to the point where you become like Jesus because we are changed not by trying really hard but in the language of the New Testament by training really hard Paul in the New Testament later writes train yourself to be godly train yourself to be like God Think about the difference between trying and training. Anybody like, uh, you just got a, like the, the classic, you just got a gym membership to start off the year? Come on, put your hand up, we know who you are. Oh, you're too cool. I know, there's probably like 50 of you in the room, right? But like it's January, you're like, I, I, I did, but that was a week ago, I'm already out, I'm already done, <laughs> whatever. So let's say, like, you're out of shape, and you, and you want to start the year off, and, and, and you want to get in shape, and you go to the gym, and your goal is, you know, I want to bench press my own weight. How do you do that? I actually have no idea. I've never done it before, but I, <laughs> but I read a book about it, because <laughs> I'm a little bit more that style of man. So, So how do you... How, how, how do you bench press your own weight? Do you go to the gym and get there and you put however much weight on the bar and then you just try really hard and you just pray and you're like, I'm going to try so hard. What would it, is that how you do it? No, what would happen if, if you tried really hard to bench press your own weight and you're out of shape and whatever? Yeah, you would die. You, uh, <laughs> 200 pounds would fall on your chest cavity and break it and collapse your lungs and, and you would spurt out blood and you would die. And... Hopefully you were a follower of Jesus. Um, so, so how do you, how do you be bench press your own weight? Well, not through trying really hard, but through training really hard. You go to the gym, and I, try, I tried this once, and here, this is what I've learned. You start with the bar. It's 45 pounds. It's so heavy. And you just start there. And you have your friend, Matt, who's in your community. You have him spot you, you know? You're like, oh, Matt, pray for me, right? And you do it. And then eventually, like, you do that for a few weeks, and then you get to the spot, I literally put two and a half pound weights on <laughs> each side. I'm like, that's right, Instagram this, mat right there, right? And then you put the five-pounders on, and then the 10-pounders on, and then a, a theoretically, you go past that, uh, <laughs> right? And, and that, that's the difference between trying and training. The problem is that in our apprenticeship to Jesus, there's a, there's a whole lot of trying really hard and not very much training. There's a whole lot of like, I'm gonna really try really hard this week to not lust, to not download porn, to not worry, to not gossip, to not whatever, to not have doubt, to whatever your thing, whatever your struggle is. And that's fine. Um, I'm all for willpower. The problem is willpower is only helpful when it works. And it works sometimes, and that's great. But it doesn't work a lot of the time. Willpower versus addiction, and we'll just get creamed every time. Willpower versus pornography, like the odds are not in your favor. Willpower versus uh, chips and guacamole, I, I'm clearly losing that battle, right? Willpower is not a bad thing. It's great. It's just, it just doesn't get you very far. So how do you overcome lust or worry or gossip or anger or bitterness? Not through trying really hard, but through training really hard. You, you adopt the training regiment of Jesus of Nazareth, right? You take on a set of practices based on his life and his teaching, things like prayer, like scripture, like worship by singing, like what you're doing right now. Do you guys, this is a spiritual discipline, coming together with followers of Jesus from all over your city and singing what you know to be true about God. Half of it you're singing to God, the other half you're singing back to yourself and to the people to your right and to your left. I believe this. I, oh, yeah, I believe this. to be. Oh, yeah, this is the true reality of the universe hearing the scriptures over your life, the way of Jesus over your life, prayer. Like, this is a spiritual discipline. This is a practice. This right here, right now, is training to be like Jesus. Now, of course, it's more than that. It's also community. It's also, more than anything, the Holy Spirit. That's what the practices of Jesus do. They open you up to a power beyond your willpower, the power of the Holy Spirit, and they create a portal for God to transform you from the inside out. It's also suffering. It's also life in community. There's more to it. My point is that your goal, if you follow Jesus, is put simply to be with him. And then out of that place of abiding, of relationship, of the presence, whatever you want to call it, is to grow, mature, change from the inside out to become like Jesus, where year after year, after decade after decade, you're more like Jesus, more like Jesus, more like Jesus. And in doing so, more like your real true self, in the best version, comfortable in your own skin, free from comparison of who God actually created you to be. Finally, goal number three is this, to do what he did. The whole goal of apprenticeship was, as I said, to carry on your master's work. Jesus' work was to usher in the kingdom of God. As I see it, you can break down Jesus' work into 10 categories or so. And there are subcategories, of course, to each. Preaching the gospel teaching the way, healing the sick, casting out demons, eating and drinking with people far from God, doing justice, peacemaking, praying, prophesying, standing up against religious and political corruption. Here's the thing. This, is the, this might sound a little overwhelming, so just take a deep breath and stay with me for a minute. If you are pre- an apprentice of Jesus, then your goal is to learn how to do all of that. There's a guy in our church right now who is just finishing up a four year apprenticeship to become an electrician. At the end of four years, his goal is not to like know, like be able to like tell me like all about electricity. Like, oh, like there's a wire and there's a thing and that's, a, that's how much I know about electricity right there <laughs> and a plug, right? His goal is to actually be able to wire a house. There's an apprentice to a plumber who's also in our church, who's a volunteer on our sound team or whatever. At the end of his, I think it's a five-year program, his goal is not to be able to just know about plumbing. Like, in, like his goal is to actually know how to plumb a house. If you are an apprentice of Jesus, your goal is not just to know a story about Jesus killing the sick or prophesying or, you know, casting out a demon or preaching the gospel. Your goal is to actually go out and do all of that stuff. You go, you make disciples of Jesus to work, to join with Jesus and the family of Jesus to your right and to your left to work for the kingdom of God to come in Surrey as it is in heaven. And no one person can do that all alone. Your job is just to play your part. And for most of us, it is just a small part. But you all, I have, you have, we all have a part to play in the kingdom of God in Surrey or in Portland and around the world as it is in heaven. So, What does it mean to follow Jesus, to be a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus? Well, it means this. It means to organize all of your life around three very simple goals. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did. Word that however you want. Call it, you know, like abiding and character and mission, like whatever you want to call it. Those three categories, as far as I can tell, are what it means to follow Jesus. And you are invited, all, all of you are invited to do this, to follow Jesus, to apprentice under Jesus. His invitation was not just for Peter and James and John and the 12th, it was to anybody and everybody. Now, notice a few things just before we wrap up and move to prayer. First off, I just wanna pound this home for just a minute. The invitation of Jesus is to become an apprentice, not a... Christian, And I say that in quotes. Um, Whoever wants to be my disciple or my apprentice. Did you know that the word Christian is used a whopping three times in the New Testament? Never in a positive way, it's an insult. But the word apprentice is used around 268 times. Now, what's the difference between a Christian and an apprentice? Um, at this point, we, we break down into semantics and it means different things to different people. I know for, at least in the US, What most people mean by Christian is basically just, you know, you believe in the basic idea of Christianity, the religion that grew up around Jesus and his teachings. You go to church once in a while, which might be like Christmas and Easter, and you're a semi-moral person. Being a Christian is more about Jesus following you, Jesus following you around to bless you, give you a shot in the arm, make you feel better after a bad date or whatever it is, answer a prayer or two when you're in a pinch, Rather than you following Jesus, this is a huge problem not only in the U.S. but across the Western world. In a recent Gallup poll, again this is for America. My guess is it would be different for um, Canada, but in America, seventy-six percent of Americans claim to be Christian, but a number. Listen to this: a number of independent surveys, and I have no idea how they measure this, but they do their best. Put the number of Americans who are actually following Jesus at right around eight percent. So. I live in Portland. It would be much, much lower. It'd be like, you know, 10% to like 0.1% or something. And my guess is it would be much lower in Canada as well. My point is that in the West, whether you're in a more secularized area like Canada or Portland or, or you know, right in the Bible Belt, or what would that be up here, like Calgary or something? Abbotsford? Something like that. All right. <laughs> that's awesome. You're all laughing. It's so great. Uh, every country has an Abbotsford, am I right? You know. <laughs> My point is that in the West, we have created a cult, listen, we have created a cultural milieu where you can be a Christian but not an apprentice of Jesus. And I just want to say that if I'm reading the four Gospels right, that's a foreign and alien idea to Jesus and the writers in the New Testament. Notice that in Mark chapter 8 and really all through Mark and pretty much in all four Gospels, you read about two categories of people, the crowds and the disciples. When you think about the disciples, don't just think about the 12, those were the apostles. Jesus had many more disciples, at least 120, if not several more hundred than that. Male and female, no other rabbi had female disciples. That's like a whole other teaching, right? And this sharp divide between the disciples and the crowds is a literary device that's used by the writer Mark and by the other gospel writers as well. And it's a way of saying to you and me, the reader, which group are you in? Are you a face in the crowd? Um, and who knows where the crowd is at with Jesus, right? The crowd may believe or not believe, may really like Jesus or may dislike Jesus. There may be a Pharisee there who's there to critique him and judge him. Maybe somebody who's just in for a free lunch. Maybe somebody who wants to see, you know, a healing. Maybe somebody who's really interested, curious, but new to the whole thing. The crowd's all over the map, right? But it's a literary device to get you as you're reading the story, as you're thinking about Jesus, to ask yourself, well, well wh- where, where, where do I put myself in the story? Am I in the crowd? Am I a Pharisee, am I this man, who's, or, or am I an apprentice of Jesus? And this is a question that two millennia later is still just as piercing. Again, Dallas Willard writes this, the greatest issue facing the world today. Think about that. With all of its heartbreaking needs, what's the greatest issue? Like, there's a, how was 2017 for you? It was a little better up north than down south, but it wasn't a great year across the board. The greatest issue is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Jesus is not looking for converts to Christianity. He is looking for apprentices in the kingdom of God. Following Jesus is not a hobby. It's not a side project. It's not like this thing you're kind of into on the side like, surfing, or you die, I guess, this far north doing that, but whatever, um, you know, remote-controlled cars, I don't know, drones, whatever your thing is, have fun with that. It's not that, it's the whole point of life. It doesn't mean you need to quit your job and drop out of school and go plant a church or become a pastor or work for a nonprofit at all. Follow Jesus as a student or a barista or an entrepreneur or a creative or an artist or a mom or a dad or a whatever but it means that following Jesus is the whole point of life. Nothing is more important than be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do what he did. Nothing matters more. Secondly and finally, the invitation is open to anybody. Like I know this is so simple, but one of the most jaw-dropping lines that you and I skip right over is right there in chapter eight, whoever wants to be my disciple. Remember what I said before, discipleship was for the best of the best of the best, the summa caolade, the top 0.01%. Jesus stands up in front of a crowd of, as far as we can tell, thousands of people, and he says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, like sign up in the back, like anybody. This would be, I don't even know what the equivalent of this would be. This would be like some rock star professor from Oxford or Stanford or, or what's the best Canadian school? UBC? Something tells me you're a source, or whatever. <laughs> UBC, Harvard, whatever it is, Cambridge, and some just rock star professor saying, Anybody want a full ride scholarship to Harvard? Just, you know, DM me on Twitter, right? You didn't graduate from high school, no problem. You flunked out of like freshman algebra, that's okay. Like full ride scholarship. Come hang out with me. You're in my class. We'll get you all the way down like Can you, we read this story about Peter and James and John just dropping everything and walking out of the boat and dropping dad's business and following, and we think, oh man, you're so like that, what virtue? We think it's like virtuous. If you were a high school dropout and you're working at the back of like a really lousy fast food place for like negative minimum wage, (laughs) and a rock star professor walks in and says, come follow me, I'll make you rich and famous. You would drop your hamburger right there and walk right out the door to follow Jesus. You would give up everything and nobody would say, what a virtuous, what a man of faith, what a woman of faith, right? You would give up anything. That's what Jesus means with this whole, I will make you into fishers of people. We read that and we think it's this like little pun, like Jesus is being cute and kind of cheesy, like he isn't that smart, doesn't really have a great sense of humor. He's like that kind of lame preacher joke thing, you know? We don't realize fishers of men or fishers of people was an idiom in the first century for a great rabbi or a great philosopher because they were so captivating, they would capture men's minds and they would reel them in to become their disciples. Jesus is saying, come follow me. You're a fisherman. You're out with dad. Come follow me. I'll make you do what I do. I will enlarge and expand the horizon of possibility over your life and your future if you will just give it up and come after and follow me. And that is what Jesus says to every single one of you here. It doesn't matter if you are brilliant or if you're the high school dropout, if you have your act together or you're a mess, if you've never made a mistake in your life, yeah, have fun with that, or or if you're dealing with addiction and shame and you're a victim or you're a abuser, you're a perpetrator. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. Every single one of you is invited in 2018 and beyond to come and follow Jesus. To end, you know, this, to live this way is to swim upstream against our society. And not only our secular, progressive, post-Christian society, but even against, at times, Christian society. It's discipline in an age of hedonism. It's attention in an age of distraction. It's community in an age of individualism. It's life in the spirit in an age of secularism. It's faith in an age of atheistic lack of belief. It's hope in an age of despair. It's peace and calm. And trust in an age of anxiety. It's love and forgiveness in an age of anger and contempt. It's suffering in an age of escapism. And it is worth every drop of sweat. Like there is nothing. I grew up in this church tradition, it was a little cheesy, but there was this line people used to say, You can't outgive Jesus. And it was cheesy and all. The older I get, the more I realize that's so true. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing in the middle of World War II as a German under Nazi occupation, wrote this beautiful book that he called The Cost of Discipleship. Just about this, about Jesus, this will cost you to live this way in a secular society, with an iPhone, in materialism, with busyness, with the view on sexuality of our culture. This will cost you. It will take your cross. It will take self-denial. It will take a radical change of your lifestyle and your morning routine and your time and your money will cost you. But sometimes, and I I love that book and I love his thought, absolutely, the cost of discipleship. But you know what we also have to factor in is the cost of non-discipleship. Yes, it will cost you to follow Jesus. It will cost you even more not to follow Jesus. It will cost you joy. It will cost you peace. It will cost you healing It will cost you becoming the best version of who God thought you up. It will cost you the future that God has envisioned over your life. It will cost you your freedom. It will cost you the ability to wake up and come to peace with your life and your body and your soul and your personality and your potential and your limitations. And trust me, it is not worth that cost. So come as we enter the year ahead follow Jesus, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth, come and follow Jesus. Let's stand and pray together. Holy Spirit, come. We ask for more of your presence, more of your power, more of your person. Settle over every mind in the room, settle over everybody, come, Holy Spirit, come. Would you just take a moment to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit who has direct access into your mind and imagination? And if you wanna close your eyes, great, you don't need to. If you wanna put your hands out in front of you, uh, we do this a lot at my church back home, this is just a way of praying with your body, a way of just saying to God that you are open to receive more of the holy spirit over your life. I you just want to spread your hands out in front of you just. And would you just maybe take a moment and ask God, God, what does this look like in 2018 or in the next season? And just create space for God to bring a habit to mine, a sin to mine, a relationship to mine, a next step to mine. God, what does this look like? be with you, to become like you, to do what you did in 2018 and beyond. Just take a moment and listen.